But this, this series, this part of this series, we're moving through various habits in the Christian life that just bring about thriving. And last week we looked at meeting with God in His Word and prayer, and we talked about setting like a time and a place and all of that. The guys in my group decided that the best time to do it, the clearest time with the most mental focus, 5.30 a.m. Now if you could map it on axes like this, with time on one and enthusiasm on the other. It did wane a little over the week, but, uh, but it was that a cracky intense. Getting messages at 5.30 a.m., they were serious about getting into the Word. Now, that might not be the best time to thrive for you, but I just want to encourage you that as a church community, as we just have a go at things, to share with one another, because you never know what's going to stick, and one way or another, we want to grow and actually thrive in our own faith and walk with Jesus. So that was week one. Week two is a word that you probably don't hear that often, and it's stewardship. Stewardship really is just the habit of using our finances to show that Christ is our treasure, to advance the gospel and to alleviate poverty and address injustice in the world. That's the simple way of understanding stewardship. The word steward literally means someone who is using something on someone else's behalf. It's not your own stuff. You've been charged to use it in a certain way. And as followers of Jesus, if you are here and a follower of Jesus, stewardship means seeing my stuff as belonging to Jesus and I'm just stewarding it on his behalf. But it's tricky to do. And it's tricky because the heart is a tricky thing to master. I read a story recently uh, from a guy called Leo Tolstoy. He goes all right at telling stories. You may have heard of him. You may have seen his paperweight called War and Peace that sits on dining tables across Australia, and it's about this big, and most people have only made 100 on one of them. I've only made 100 pages through. So if you find that too much, and you want to say you've read Tolstoy, just read this one. It's like four pages. But uh, he wrote a story called, in 1886, called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? That's the pressing central question of the story. And it recounts the story, or tells the story, rather, of Pahom, a poor man who's trying to make his way in the world. And at the beginning of the story... He's living on rented land, struggling to make ends meet, and he thinks to himself, we peasants always die as we are living, with nothing of our own. If only we had our own land, it would be different. And so he hears one day that there's an old woman who's selling off her land and taking half the price up front, and then the other half the year later. So he thinks, this is my chance. He scrounges all the money they have. They sell a donkey. They sell some beans. They rent their kids out to work. They, he borrows some money off his brother. He scraps together everything he has for half of the amount for the land. Buys it, tills it. It goes so well that he pays it off in no time. And suddenly, he's doing pretty well for himself. But then he hears of some land owned by... Uh, hears from some land by a passerby saying that actually the land is 10 times as fruitful where they're from. And he, sits to himself, he says to himself, why should I suffer in this narrow hole? If one can live so well elsewhere, I'll sell my land and my homestead here, and with the money, I'll start afresh over there, and I'll get everything new. And so he does. And very quickly, he builds out that land, and then he has to rent extra properties just for his crops and produce. And of course, because of that, he starts to become dissatisfied with his lot. And then he hears from someone that there is a land owned by a tribe called the Bashkirs where, where land can be bought for cheap. And again, he says to himself, out there I can get 10 times as much land as I have now. I must try it. So he heads out and he meets the chief. And he asks him, how much for the land? And the chief says, 1,000 rubles per day. 
And he says, so that's not really a price. How much, how much for how much land? And the chief reiterates, a thousand rubles for a day. Put a thousand rubles in this hat, mark out as much land as you possibly can before the sun sets, and if you get back in time, all the land that you've marked is yours. And if you don't get back in time, the thousand rubles are gone. And so his mind starts spinning. He just thinks, my gosh, imagine how much, what a great tract of land I could get done in a single day. So he agrees, he prepares himself, and he meets the chief, puts his thousand rubles in, and sets out to mark out the best possible and the largest possible tract of land that he can. And as you might anticipate, as the day goes on, he's overstretched. He realizes about halfway through that he's possibly not going to make it back in time, and so he starts moving quickly. But then the panic sets in, and so he moves faster and faster to the point where his legs feel like they're not his own. It says that his chest is so sore that it's bellowing, it says, like a blacksmith's bellows. As he goes to, to head back, he becomes faint, and he barely can make it. He even thinks to himself, there is plenty of land, but will God let me live on it? I have lost my life. I have lost my life. I shall never reach the spot. But just as he's about to collapse, he sees on the horizon as the sun is setting, the chief holding the hat. And the tribe are all willing him on. And so he presses on further, though he's beginning to almost black out. And as he stumbles across to the finish line, he gets there just in time and grabs the hat. And the chief says, that's a fine fellow. He has gained much land, and then he collapses and dies. And the story finishes like this. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahom to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. That was the answer to the question, how much land does a man need? It's a story about the heart, isn't it? It's a story about the heart that wants more and more and more. When a heart is beset by greed and the love of stuff and the belief that if I have more, then I will be happy, that happiness is just on the other horizon of new things, it can be a madness that's even self-destructive. A heart sitting so set on living life to the full that it would even lose its life in the process. It's madness. The heart beset with greed answers the question, how much, always with the same answer, more. And Jesus was the one who first said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And no doubt, Tolstoy had that in, he was a big fan of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, not really a believer himself, but he thought the Sermon on the Mount was the most incredible piece of work he'd encountered. And here, no doubt, he had it in mind as he tells this story, a cautionary tale. What we'll see today is that in order to be stewards, the first thing to address is the heart. The unsatisfied heart is ravenous and untamable. And unless our hearts find their satisfaction in Christ, we will never see our stuff as just stuff. It will be a treasure to live for or even to die for. And what we'll see in the habit of stewardship is that in order to steward our finances for the glory of God, in order to steward our things, to advance the gospel, to alleviate poverty and address injustice, it starts with treasuring Christ. We're not treating worldly things as our treasure and the thing to live for, but to know that if Christ is our treasure, then our stuff is just stuff. And I'm going to pray that he would do this mighty work in our hearts because we alone are not sufficient to do it. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you.
we are prone to the madness of greed. We are prone to look to possessions to satisfy our hearts, to give a status among people. But you alone are good enough, are glorious enough, are large enough for our deepest desires. Father, we pray that we would see you in your word, that we wouldn't just hear words, that we would see that this is your very word, the word of God, and that it might move us to a deeper joy and delight in you. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, the first element, as I said, in following Christ is that he would be our treasure, that Christ alone would be so. And I don't say that just offhand. It's what he describes uh, in, in the story, a very short story that he gives. It's only one sentence long. This is how Jesus describes what it means to follow him. Look what it says in Matthew 13, 44. Again, if war and peace is too long and then uh, how much land does a man need is too long, just stick to Jesus' stories. One sentence is all you've got to get through. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is just Jesus' shorthand for talking about being a follower of Jesus. If Jesus is your king and you live under his good rule and reign and authority, that's what it is to live under the kingdom of heaven, under his very rule. And so here Jesus is describing conversion. He says, this is what it's like to come into my kingdom, to finally have me as your king. And he says, it's like someone who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And this, for people in the day, was not that hypothetical. Given that there were no banks or financial institutions, if you had a large amount of money that you wanted to keep safe, one of the ways you might have done that was to dig a big hole bury it and tell no one where it was. The only problem with that is, if you die suddenly or unexpectedly, or you go missing, no one's going to know where it is. So occasionally, you might find somewhere someone's buried fortune. And so Jesus is saying, look, imagine a guy goes to buy a field, and the person selling it has no idea what's on the property. And as he's inspecting it, he discovers that there is an incredible fortune on there. He says he goes away, sells everything he has with joy, because he knows that he is going to gain more from this field than anything he already has. And Jesus says, this is what it's like to know Jesus as king. He says it's to give away all that you have for joy. He doesn't do it out of duty or obligation. He doesn't do it out of desperation. His motivation is the sheer joy of it. Finding Christ is a matter of finding a joy supreme to all others. To come to Jesus is not a matter of mere logic, like, well, it all seems to add up, or I guess Jesus is Lord, it sort of makes sense that I should go with him, or this is kind of what my family has always believed, or this is what we do, or this is what my tribe is kind of into. No, it says for joy. And that's what it was like for me when I first came to know Jesus. I'd been sitting in church for years, not getting why people did this week in and week out, and then suddenly it made sense when I understood who Jesus was and that I get to follow him rather than I have to follow him. Jesus says to follow him is a joy. And he says because of this, the man sells everything. Notice that he doesn't sell most things and he doesn't sell half of his things. In the story, this man sells everything. Meaning that to find Jesus is not to find one other good element to a good life or another ingredient in a recipe that makes up for a meaningful or significant life. To find Christ is to find the only thing, the thing that makes all other things as nothing. 
That is, to have Jesus and nothing else is to have everything. And to have everything and not Jesus is to have nothing. That's what he means from this story. Jesus was not a joy, but the joy of life. And this wasn't theoretical for the early church. That's why if you read through the book of Hebrews, you'll see the author write to the church and say to them, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These were real people, real followers of Jesus, who really lost everything because they followed Jesus, and yet they had joy. It says you joyfully accepted the plundering of your properties. To know Jesus is to find joy. It's not an optional extra in the Christian life. It's not that there are some Christians who are just kind of that way inclined. Or it's not the case that there are some who are just more, more effusive about their faith and others are more reserved. The truth is, if Jesus is not your central joy, you may not have come to know the real Jesus. Christ is not much honored by joyless worship. Think of it in a very practical way like this. A few weeks ago when it was Valentine's Day, my wife and I don't do anything specific for Valentine's Day. It's kind of an unspoken pact that we have because I feel like every gesture I do on that day is tainted by like, you know, like, well, you just have to because it's Valentine's Day or whatever. But I was driving home and I saw some flowers that I thought she would like, so I stopped to get them. And I even, when I realized it was Valentine's Day, I almost hesitated because I was like, I don't want to think I'm just doing it out of obligation. But I bought them because I knew she would like them and brought them home for her. Now imagine if you flipped it around, imagine if I bought them, went home to her and said, wife, I mean that's a bad start right there, but <laughs> I say, uh, wife, this is my Valentine's Day obligation to you, done and completed, uh, it's, it's flowers, there you go. If I was to do that, you would say in every way that was, that was worse than doing nothing. At that point you are definitely going backwards. And the reason for it is we understand quite naturally in a relationship the duty and obligation does not honor the other person, does it? To just obligingly do something actually is a dishonor to them in that kind of relationship. To follow Christ is for him to be your ultimate joy. And that's not to say that Christians don't wrestle with depression, with grief, with sadness, with all the things that come with living in a broken world, all the things that we see Jesus wrestle with throughout the gospel. But it does mean that he's your central joy. And it matters for our witness. Look at what the late Martin Lloyd-Jones said of joy, the place of joy in the Christian life. He says, Believing as I do that the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church, the subject dealt with in these sermons is to me of the greatest possible importance. This is on a book on depression, a series of sermons called Spiritual Depression. And he says, Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. There can be but little doubt that the exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. This is what Paul the Apostle was talking about in Philippians 3, 7-9 when he says, but whatever gain I had, and he's talking about his religious tradition, because he belonged to a group of people who believed that the way that God would accept you is by being from the right family, doing the right things at the right time according to the right traditions. And then he says, whatever gain I had, whatever resume I had of religious tradition, I count it as loss, as almost having set me back. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If it is not your joy and privilege to know Jesus, the good news is that you just may not have met him yet. See, the gospel is you had no righteousness of your own. There was no way to be justified before God by what you do. And yet Christ came and lived the life that you could not live, died the death that you could not survive, and rose again to defeat death that you never could have defeated so that he might be your treasure, your life, your way to God. And he brought you into the family of God and saved you eternally. This is why Christ is a treasure, the treasure. And the first key to being a steward is knowing that Christ is your all-surpassing treasure. And the second one then is that if Christ is your treasure, then your stuff is simply your stuff. Look at what Jesus teaches right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, he starts with a caution in 6, 19 to 21 from the reading we read out just before. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, there, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, Don't treat as treasure what is not treasure. A treasure is a possession that has been united to your heart, to your deepest desires, to your deepest joy. He says, because if your joy and happiness, your meaning for life is found in something in this world, you are incredibly vulnerable. Where moth and rust or thief can take away and destroy. To love anything like it is a treasure, something that can pass away, that, that will be taken from you at some point in this life, if not by death itself, to love anything like that as a treasure to hold on to, he says, is crazy. It's crazy because it cannot last. There is nothing we have that is so good that it will outlast this lifetime, let alone eternity. So Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth, but instead treasure in heaven. Know your God, the one who you cannot be separated from even by death. Treasure that lasts beyond the reach of moth and rust and thief. And then having said that, he then says something weird. I don't know if you noticed it in the reading earlier on. But look what he says in Matthew 6, 22 to 24. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus so often said profound things that I imagine his disciples nodded to like they understood it, and then went away quietly and just went, did anyone know what he's talking about? And then what, you even get it in the Gospels. They come back to him and say, Jesus, I'm just asking for a friend, but what, what were you talking about earlier? And here is one of those things where it's, it's kind of hard to get at. He says, the, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. And he's making a comment on sight and blindness. And here... It's clear that he's not talking about just physical blindness. He's not going, having a go at people with an impairment, partly because that would be slack, but also because throughout the Gospels, you'll see that blindness has a deep spiritual meaning. The idea of blindness in the Gospels is being spiritually blind more than being physically blind. And it comes up again and again and again. And what is he saying here? The eye, what you look at, what you desire, will have an impact on the whole of the person. 
And the context in terms of here stuck between two verses about earthly treasure surely is referring to the fact that greed more than any other sin has the power to blind us. It is different in that way, isn't it? If you are stealing something, it's quite obvious to you and those around you that you're stealing it. You don't just show up in someone's house and start taking things and then they turn up or the police turn up and then you're like, oh my gosh, this isn't my house, guys. What's going on here? These aren't my things. I didn't even know what was going on. No, it doesn't happen. But it is often the case that we can be beset with greed and not know it. And the reason for that is there is always someone around you who you can look at who's more greedy than you and who wants more than you and who has more than you. It doesn't matter where you are or in what culture you're in. There'll always be someone above you. I mean, maybe unless you're the richest person in the world. But even then, you're like, yeah, but the other guy, you know, whatever. But with greed, it can blind us to it, to its power. It's very rare that someone even, I mean, imagine you, if you're here and in a small group, how many times, can you even count how many times someone has come to group and if you're sharing your lives has said, I'm really struggling with greed. I just want to confess now that I, I, I feel like greed is something I need to repent of. I can't remember it happening in all my years in the church community. The other ones tend to come up, but this one doesn't. It has a power to blind, and Jesus is warning us here. And so I just want you to, just for a moment, just consider that. Because the temptation will be to sit here and listen to this and think, I know someone who really needs to hear this right now. Or you're thinking of three or four people, and you're like, these people really need to hear it. Or even more so for me, to preach on it and think, yeah, the church really needs to hear this right now. Jesus says, I'm warning you, the eye matters. And the blinding power of greed can beset anyone. And so I want to just stop right in the middle here and to pray that God would open our eyes. And as we land on, where, on what Jesus is talking about here, that we won't think of all the other people that need to hear this. And that I, in speaking about it, won't think of all the people that need to apply this, but that we will hear Jesus' words for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we are so easily beset with greed. It so easily takes hold of our heart, the desire for more, the belief that if we have more, that we will be happier. And yet we have so often been let down, it should be obvious to us that this is not enough. But Father, we just pray by your mercy and your grace that your spirit would give us eyes to see and a new vision for what it means to follow Christ, to love him with all our heart, to love you with all our heart, that we might see our stuff and our possessions in a new way and be a witness even in a city where we're having more, we're consuming more, is the M.O., Father, we pray that you would strengthen us for this. Amen. It's a fitting time to pray before we land on the very last sentence of what Jesus says. Because look at his stark warning at the end. In Matthew 6, 24, and remember he's talking to new disciples who've gathered to him. Who've maybe even left things to come and follow him. And he says in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one... And love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus and money will not cohabit the same throne. There'll be, rule, there'll be room enough for one alone to rule. Either your deepest joy will be in something you can have or possess, or it will be Jesus, but it will not be both. 
Jesus warns us. Some of us even sitting here may at some point walk away from Christ having decided that he is not worth what we can get in this world. He is not mucking around. We are called to live this out. If Christ is our treasure, then our stuff is our stuff, and we need to start living in this way. And the question often with these passages is, because it's funny, if Jesus just gave us a number or an amount of stuff that you could have, that would be so handy, wouldn't it? And he never, ever does. And in some ways, it's kind of frustratingly slippery. But there's genius in how he preaches because you can never read any of the passages where Jesus preaches on money and walk away with the implication that I should probably have more. That is the one thing you can't do. In fact, the simplest way to apply Jesus' teaching in any of these passages is just this. When you walk away from Jesus' teaching on it, the implication must be for ourselves to live on less that we might give away more. That we are called to live on less to give away more and not out of duty or obligation or guilt, but for the sheer joy of it. So we are called to live on less. The heart beset by greed will always answer the question, how much, with more. But the heart that is satisfied in Christ will always answer the question, how much, with, I could probably do with less. So let's actually start living it. And let's start just by doing something, just anything. Rather than waiting to do some grand gesture where you like, I don't know, liquidate everything you've got and just give it all away, why not just start with something today? Well, let's start with this even. Easter's a good, that's a good Jesus date in the year. Why not say from now until Easter, just buy no non-essential items? And this is greed in the heart, isn't it? Because straight away we're like, what's essential? I mean, what would you count as absolutely essential? But I say pray over that and say between now and then, Add no non-essential items and actually look to give away, sell, repurpose, whatever, as much as you can. And why not even start by, by just straight away just getting rid of just 10 things? So not, we love base 10 numbers, so just getting away, giving away 10 things. I tried this a couple of weeks ago, and it's an interesting exercise in understanding the heart. We've got, I've got two folders of DVDs that I honestly have not touched for probably a decade. I was like, it's time for them to go. And then when I flipped them open, I thought, yeah, but like, there might be a time when I do want to watch all three Austin Powers in the same night. <laughs> and, I, and I felt this draw to not throw them out. And then I was like, okay, wh- so why is that? What's, why is that going on? I mean, I, like looking at it on just pure facts, I haven't looked at them for 10 years. If you were to put money on it, they're probably not going to get watched in the next 10. So why do I want to hold on to them? There is a fear in us that somehow, in some way, I will miss out on some future joy if I get rid of this item, that I will be bereft, that I will, on a particular night, be like, I do need to watch all three Austin Powers, and, and the fact that I can't means I will never be happy again. What is, my life is over. Now, of course, when you say it like that, it's ridiculous, but that's why we don't throw stuff out, isn't it? That's why we just accumulate and accumulate, because we're like, if I have a lot of stuff, I can be as sure as possible that I will be happy in the future. And this runs counter to the belief that Christ is everything. And so to start chipping away at that belief, maybe to be a people who just start, just bit by bit, not in big grand gestures, but just start to live on a little less and then give away a little more. Because our belief is that our stuff doesn't make us happy. And our homes are a temple to what we believe is really going to make us happy. And if you're someone who has kids, 
It's a temple where they learn about what we believe about what makes us happy. And so often, the amount of stuff we have is making us, I mean, Jesus built the warnings in, is making us incredibly unhappy. We have so much junk that we spend so much, we buy things, then we store them, then we have to buy things to store the things, and it just goes on and on. Then if you have kids, you you get more things, and then you need a bigger house to store those things. Then you get mad at the kids for not putting the things away or looking after them, even though they've got more stuff than they can handle. And it just goes around in a hot mess of anger and madness and frustration. So the call is to do something. Jesus even says after another parable that life is not in the abundance of your possessions. Let's start to live on less and to give away more. So the first element, live on less. Between now and Easter, don't add anything and start trying to give things away. Even if you can sell things to then be generous with the money that comes from them. <laughs> Rather than when you sell it, you're like, I could buy so much stuff once I sell all this stuff. <laughs> and in giving away more, the call is to, as best as we can, do as much good as we possibly can with what God has given us to steward. I was listening to an interview by Sam Harris, who's a, a public intellectual and atheist. A neurologist is sort of his, um, his trade. And he was interviewing William McCaskill, who's the founder of Effective Altruism, so a non, non-religious charity as far as I could tell from the interview. And uh, his principle was that uh, just being... Just by virtue of being in the West and having the amount of means and things that are available, we are obliged to look to alleviate poverty and suffering in the world. And the number that he put on it was at least 10%. I don't know if he had a church background or why it was. He was pressed on why he had that number. He just said it was an arbitrary number. It seems to be more than nothing, well above the average, which is about 2% for a country like Australia. And, uh, and he was also saying that as you give away, your concern should be to mobilize that money as effectively as you can to do the greatest amount of good. And he gave the example of, um, kind of, the, of things not going so well by using the example of the play pump. Has anyone heard of the initiative called the play pump? You probably haven't because whoever did it has tried to bury it so deep <laughs> in the cultural pile that it never gets spoken of again. The idea was in African communities, water needs to be pumped in order to be attained. And they thought... Kids like to play, water needs to be pumped. What if you brought them together? So they created this merry-go-round that as you played on it, would extract water from, you know, from a source. And on the surface, it seemed like a great idea. Jay-Z got in on it. Uh, also, Mark Ronson, Laura Bush, all, there were big celebrities that kind of backed it and raised all this money for it. But in 2009, a Guardian article kind of unpegged what was going on with this. The problem with the play pump was that it was less effective than the hand pumps that were already there. Not only that, it wasn't very fun to play on because it created resistance as you played on it, so kids didn't want to play on it. Not only that, but even if they did, the author, the author estimated that kids would need to play on this thing for 27 hours a day to produce the 2,500 litres of water required to actually you know, uh, supply the communities. So it was a disaster from start to finish, and some of these pumps were installed. Some of the hand pumps that were saving lives were being taken out and play pumps put in. And it was a a disaster from start to finish. And he says all of this just to say, try and think as hard as you can about how to mobilize as as much money as you can to help as many people as you can. And Harris, in reflecting on this, Sam Harris was saying, look, the difficulty is finding the motivation to do it. He's saying... He, he himself feels obliged, but he says, in a, in a society where you're taught to believe that your wealth is your own, that everything you have is yours, 
It's very hard to get people to see that they, can, they should be releasing their funds to go elsewhere. But as Christians, this shouldn't be so. It's the natural and logical implication of believing the gospel, isn't it? We've been loved generously by a generous God. Our stuff is not our own. Our salvation is not even our own. Everything we have is by grace. And we are called not to have treasure on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven. That is to live for our heavenly king and to use what we have to advance the gospel so that people might find forgiveness and salvation in him and to alleviate poverty and address injustice. This is how our Lord would have us use our stuff. And so what we're going to do over this week is we meet in groups or even as you reflect on those plans to thrive, there are three questions on it just for reflection. The first is, how will I cultivate contentment and live simply? Everything we engage with, you would see over a thousand adverts a day at a conservative estimate. And all of them are building in you the desire that I'll be happy if I have more and sad if I have less. What are you going to do to cultivate contentment and live simply? How will I manage my money? I've heard it said that, uh, that uh, spending without a budget is like driving without a speedo. And I think if many of us just had the dashboard out, and one column was like coffee and then Uber, it would just, you'd probably go into the fetal position. But, but part of that is to be good stewards, we have to know where it's going. And I say this myself, we don't have a budget at the moment. and don't know where some of our money is going to. And, and you have subscriptions where you're just hemorrhaging from your account over time. So we're not in debt. We don't have credit cards or anything like that. But the conviction has struck me, even as I've studied these scriptures, that I could more effectively, and for the joy of it, be using these things to advance the gospel in the world and to actually alleviate suffering to the glory of Jesus. So how will I manage my money? And then thirdly, how will I give to support the local church, global mission, and alleviating poverty and addressing injustice? Now at church, there are a few organizations that we support. Asylum Seeker Center in Newtown, Diamond Pregnancy Helping Out Single Mums, the Renews and the Edwards doing overseas mission and advancing the gospel overseas. And we give away more than 10% of our operations giving is going towards those ends. And so I just I commend you for giving towards that. Maybe now is the time to consider that as we go forward. It might be time to consider your giving to this local church as we look to advance the gospel as a community, as we look to hold out the gospel of Jesus in our context for the glory of Christ. JobKeeper ends in March. Now is the right time to be thinking about our, uh, our funds and finances going forward. And so it's a time to pray and think on that. But it's also the case that, look, this plan to thrive might not be the thing that works for you or whatever it is. Like, there's nothing in Scripture about asking these specific questions, is there? But Jesus does expect his words to be heard and to act on them. And so I would encourage you, don't procrastinate generosity do something today before the sun goes down. And to, to bring us back to where we started, in that story, how much land does a man need, Pahom, as he's setting out his markers for the tract of land, as he realizes he's running out of time and potentially life, says, an hour to suffer, a lifetime to live. If I could just get through this next hour, then I will live and everything will be all right. And that's exactly how greed works, doesn't it? I'll be generous, like I'll, just, I'll get through my degree and then it'll be generosity time. 
or just this next phase of work and then generosity. Or I'll just, I'll get secure and I'll get a property and then I'm going to be so generous. Or it's going to blow everyone's mind, especially you, Jesus. It's just, wow, they're going to be so generous. But that's how we end up doing very little or nothing month after month into year after year. I say, just do something today. Even if it doesn't work out, it's just a signal of intent. Take 10 items, throw them out just as a way of starting. It may not work out, whatever. It's kind of, you know, if you've played soccer growing up, it's like that kid in the team who tries to score from kickoff. You're like, look, it, it doesn't go in, but I, I love the heart, right? It's, like, it's just a signal of intent. So I'd say just do something. Give something away, even if it's a small amount, just to start the process of thinking, if Jesus' words are true, that I'm not to lay up earthly treasures, that I'm to lay up treasures in heaven, then to do something. And to pray that God would work powerfully in this community, that we might be a witness to him. Right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he calls his church to be a light on a hill and a city that cannot be hidden. To live according to different priorities. May he empower us to be that kind of community. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are a generous God who poured out from the storehouses of heaven blood of your own son on our behalf. Father, we so often struggle to have the right motivation or the heart to do it. But Father, we just pray that by your spirit, you would give us such a deep joy in Christ that it would be our joy to be generous to others as you have been generous to us. May we reflect on the goodness of the gospel, of how kind you have been to us, of how you have been as a father to us, adopting us in, and that it would move us to want to reflect this truth in the way that we steward our things. Our Father, may we do this not from false motivation, not from guilt, not from the sense that we should or ought or others are doing it, but simply for joy in Christ. And Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.